This is the sermon podcast for Mosaic Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Committed to bringing the beauty of the gospel of Jesus to the broken places of our lives. Uh, again, uh, always a, a joy and privilege uh, to be in God's Word together. Uh, if you're new to our church, I feel like I've mentioned this several times, we just have a lot of new folks that are kind of trafficking through, and some are landing with us right now, and so I feel like I, I, I'd like to say this frequently, so if you hear it a lot, I'm sorry, but it is, um, it is our common practice at Mosaic Church to preach kind of methodically through um, books of the Bible, for the most part, uh, we'll, we'll do chapters at a time, sections at a time, verse by verse kind of preaching, uh, not in a way to be like tedious where we feel like we have to like exhaust every passage and kind of wring out everything that's in it. That's not really our intent, but our intent uh, is to give you kind of exposure to just the, the breadth and the depth of, of Scripture. And so we, you know, we just, we just address where we left off and it gives you a balanced view of the scriptures. And we, we typically try to go like New Testament and do some Old Testament. And we just try to do that kind of stuff just to, again, just expose you to the full counsel of God's word. And so if you've been with us, you'll know that we're, we're right in the thick of a, a book in the New Testament. It's called Acts. And so if you've, if you've brought a Bible, I'd invite you to go ahead and open that now. Uh, it is in the New Testament. Um, it's titled Acts of the Apostles is, is a common uh, title for that. Uh, one I proposed early in the series, was it could be retitled Acts, Continuing Acts of the Lord Jesus. In other words, uh, this book uh, contains uh, historical events and um, that happened after the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. So if you're, if you're new to the Bible, perhaps, or you're new to the Christian faith, uh, these events are what unfolded, what the implications after Jesus' life were. And, and to catch you even to more speed, because I feel like sometimes you get into a thick of a, a book like this, and you kind of forget where you're at. Uh, we're going to be in Acts chapter 12 this morning, and those events, um, actually the whole book really, um, stretches a, a number of years of activity of these early followers of Jesus. Um, and, and the book was recorded by a man named Luke, and he was recording these events um, probably about 10 years after Jesus' death. So just to give you some context, you know, Luke is a detailed historian uh, who is now kind of backtracking um, and recording all of these events so that you and I would have access to them. Because as we'll see in today's passage, some of the early leaders of this movement of following Jesus would begin losing their lives. And much of these events and the teachings of Jesus uh, were contained through oral tradition. And so men like Luke began to record these events so that people like us could have access to them. Uh, before I read the passage this morning, um, I feel like I've you know, publicly grieved this over the past couple of weeks. But as you all know, the first two weeks in October, we're all supposed to be delighting in hot air balloons and breakfast burritos and cold weather. And you know, maybe you're getting two out of three of those. But right now, the balloons, even though there's some up, it's not what we're normally accustomed to here in Albuquerque. 
And I was reflecting on that a little bit this week. And a few years ago, I was flying, um, and I'm not usually the guy when I'm flying who, like, feels like they have to talk to their neighbor. Like, I know you're, like, you're the pastor. Like, you're supposed to tell everybody about Jesus on all your flights. It's just not me. I usually read or sleep on airplanes. But on this particular flight, um, I did have a conversation with the girl that was next to me. And she was from South Korea. And she was uh, coming uh, to Albuquerque uh, with a group of friends uh, to participate in the balloon fiesta. Uh, And not just participate, like they had a balloon, like they were in the balloon fiesta. And she was just telling me just about all these plans they had made. Like this was kind of, she didn't use this language, but something we would call like a bucket list thing, right? Like something that they had like saved money for is like a big deal for them to come to our balloon fiesta. And I was just kind of taken aback by it like, wow, that's that's kind of a big deal. And, you know, it, it just made me realize, you know, we, particularly if you're local to Albuquerque, you've been around this thing a long time. We just kind of take it for granted. We don't, we don't necessarily, we don't weigh uh, the depth of it and the scale of it and all that it means, it, it's so much bigger than us, right? Like, it is, it's a big thing. I wonder if, if I'm just curious, if, if maybe some of you have just kind of been around Christianity a lot. You've been around the church. You're familiar with the Bible. Uh, you've been walking with the Lord a long time. It's like, not much new information gets relayed to you. Like, you know a lot about Christianity, but I'm, I'm curious if maybe some of that enamor and the weight of belonging to something so much bigger than yourself uh, has just gone lost on you. Like, like Acts chapter 12, uh, it gives us a little peek behind the curtains. I'm going to use some of that language of what we belong to as Christians something that is just incredibly bigger than all of us. And it is, it is an invitation. It is a sweet invitation to anyone here who wants to be part of something way bigger than themselves. So with all that said, let me read Acts chapter 12. I'm going to read the whole chapter here. It's about 25 verses. It's narrative, so you should be able to follow along. But uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, we've got the words you know, in, the, in the bulletin uh, on the website, but just just listen along if you don't have a Bible. Acts chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread, and when he had seized him, he put him in prison delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the, cell, in the cell, and he struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. The chains fell off his hands, and the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. 
And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And when he went out and followed him, he did not know that, that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. And then he departed and went to another place. Now when the day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. This is the word of God. Let's pray and ask him to bless the preaching of it. Pray with me. Father, I pray now uh, that uh, the words of my mouth and that the meditations of all of our hearts that are gathered here collectively together today, either in the park or, or online, that they would be pleasing to you. You are a rock. You are our Redeemer. There is no one else like you. Would you do that today? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We can be all right, John? All right. Um, this, uh, this week I found myself wandering through downtown Albuquerque. Uh, I do strange things sometimes. And uh, I was kind of waiting for one of my kids' appointments to be over. And I was downtown just kind of walking through. And I, I ended up... At the at the main uh, branch of the of the local library, there just kind of wandered through, and you know, like libraries, just confession of a of a local pastor here. They've just never been my thing. Um, I don't think I ever ever figured out like the Huey Decimal System. I, I still to this day I probably couldn't find a book in the library. And so, the way I you know do libraries is I just go to the tables where the librarians are kind of telling you what to read. 
right? They'll put out like seasonal things or kid books or, you know, the top sellers. And so I just, I just go there. I don't even go into the decimal system. But um, I kind of was just wandering around, didn't have really any plans to get any books or anything. I was just kind of just kind of scavenging around. And I was, I was kind of drawn to a table, and it was like a Halloween-themed table. Uh, the, the, the title of the, of the table, they had like a little banner there, was Beyond the Veil. And so they had like the Ghost Hunter books and like Haunted Houses in America books. And I kind of picked up a couple, just kind of skimmed through them, no big deal. But another one attracted me, and it was, um, the title of it was uh, Ghost Ranch. Uh, the Sacred and Wounded Place. So I was like, oh, that sounds cool. You know, local New Mexico thing, Ghost Ranch, for those of you who don't know. Lots of us as kids would go up there and do camps and all the things. But Ghost Ranch, so th- it was largely like a picture book, right, like photography. And so I was just kind of thumbing through it. I sat down with it for a minute. I had some time to kill. So I kind of thumbed through it. And then towards the back of the book, he had, he had written <clears throat> about the place a little bit. I was reading it, and it was a lot of new information to me. And this guy was not from New Mexico, and so this was one of his places that he would come, and he would do photography. And it really, you know, I don't know if he used this language, but like it kind of was like a soul place for him. He called it a sacred place. And I love that language that he would, he would call it both sacred and wounded. He would talk about the land, like crying out for justice, like this our parched land. Like he was just describing New Mexico in these really, really beautiful ways. I was really enjoying it. And then he quoted this philosopher, a Spanish philosopher, I don't know his name, but he's, uh, the, the philosopher said, um, tell me where you're from, and I'll tell you who you are. And, and the author of this, this book that I was reading, he kind of spun his own statement off of it. And he said, tell me the place that you're drawn to, and I will tell you who you are becoming. And I just, I, th- I found that really, really prophetic in the sense that, you know, this, this, uh, this photographer and author was, was kind of pinpointing a, a lot in, in my understanding of the Christian worldview of we are becoming a people. And um, whatever it is we're drawn to, and if that's a place for you or a realm for you, um, that is very telling about who you're becoming as a person. And I, I just couldn't help but just kind of just draw some, you know, current context application for us to our lives. Like, to some degree, wherever you're at on the, you know, surviving a global pandemic spe- spectrum, from, from thriving to, to dying, wherever you're at in that, there's got to be, there's something in all of us that, that is feeling... Um, a pull or a tug or a draw away from kind of the physical, ordinary world that we've all learned to operate in. You know, it, it, it began with like us clearing out our garages and taking a bunch of stuff to Goodwill and doing, you know, DIY house projects and remodeling kitchens and bathrooms. And like, we just started, it kind of started with that. And that lasted about six months you know, and then, like, this thing kept going, and so now I'm wondering if we're, like, beginning to declutter our souls a bit, and just kind of reevaluate, you know, what is significant to our personhood, who we are as people, and, 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 and here's what I, here's where I want to kind of tie that into today's passage. 
that drawing, that place, is what I would label the unseen. Call it the supernatural, call it the spirit, call it heaven, call it the kingdom of God. You know, the, the nomenclature, it, it can be interchangeable. But kind of this unseen spirituality um, is, is what's put on display for us in Acts chapter 12. Like unseen things that are going on that we don't always have, you know, privy access to are, are put on display for us. And, and, it, and it's not given to us just so we can kind of look at it and be like, oh, that's a, that's a cool story of, you know, something God did in somebody's life, and I'm sure that had meaning. Like the world of the Bible is our world. And, you know, the modern Western mind is very quick to explain away events like this. It's, it's, you know, it's what C.S. Lewis would call chronological snobbery. You, we, we chronologically snub like the ancient people. Like, oh, they believed like that was like supernatural and th- that, that clearly, you know, those locks were rusted. You know, and that and that it just fell off, and and you know, like like the the explanations galore of explaining away mystical spiritual things are so easily come to us. But the world of the Bible is our world, the spiritual world, and so you know, I I, I guess part of what I want you to 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 see out of this passage this morning is the unseenness of it. Uh, I was reminded of a. The Patch Adams the movie. There's this scene where Robin Williams goes into his his uh, neighbors, uh, his you know their patients in the hospital. He goes over to the to the next door guy's room, and this guy they didn't have great interaction before, but this guy talks to Robin Williams, and he says this. I just kind of I looked up the video this week, refresh my memory. This guy tells Robin Williams as he's holding up his hand to, to, to tell him what he sees. He says, "See what nobody else sees." And he's asking him how many fingers he sees. See what nobody else sees. See what everybody else chooses not to see. And then uh, Robin Williams, you know, he's supposed to fade his eyes and look at the man and not the thing that's in front of him. Look at the thing that's beyond him. And so he sees more fingers than the five. And he says, see the whole world new every day. Here's my big idea I want to I work through this passage with this morning. I want you to see the unseen. When you see the unseen, it will change the way you see everything in the world. So that's the invitation. See the unseen behind what we see. Okay? And, and conveniently, there's three points. I, I think they jump out of this passage for me, and, and they all start with a P. Uh, I, I couldn't even get away from being that convenient for you this morning. Here's the three, um, and I'll just kind of use like windows. Like I think there's three windows, and they're connected to each other. I'm going to try to string them together a little bit. There's three windows where God kind of, he pulls the veil back, he opens the blinds, and lets us see beyond what is seen. And the windows are persecution, prayer, and politics. Okay, so those are the three windows we're just going to kind of peek into this morning. Let's talk about um, persecution. Um, what we see here is the continued oppression of the early followers of Jesus. Uh, Peter and James are the two uh, that, are, that are talked about in the first five verses. 
um, Herod the king was laying violent hands on people of the church, and his, you know, his political approach was to go after the key leaders. So James and Peter, being two of them, were the ones he went after. James, in this passage, this is not the brother of Jesus. This was the brother of John Mark. Um, he is almost, it's almost like he's mentioned in passing here. It's like, oh, by the way, um, James was killed by the sword, uh, a.k.a. his head was removed. It's, it's like just a passing comment. Like Luke doesn't give any, any discussion to it. He doesn't like give like, you know, an ode to James. Or like it's just, that's matter of fact. James has died. And now our fearless leader, Peter, is imprisoned. And, and, and when you hear prison, you know, not modern day prison. Like it wasn't a life sentence. This was detaining him until Passover weekend was over so that he could, that he could be killed. So in no uncertain terms, both the followers and Peter were under the assumption that his life was coming to an end soon. You know, he wasn't awaiting a trial. Uh, he wasn't thinking he was going to, you know, g- make bail and kind of get out on, on good terms for a while. Like, his death was imminent. So we see Peter and James uh, essentially, you know, being put to death. And w- what it does is it, it introduces us... Um, particularly Herod. Herod's an important key figure in this. We're going to talk about him in a second. But it introduces us to the broader narrative of the entire storyline of the scriptures. And the entire storyline of the scriptures is that God has cursed the world and humanity because of the work of his ancient foe, the serpent. Uh, If you're not familiar with the Genesis account after the fall of humanity, after we were plunged into our rebellion, God cursed the one, the deceiver, the father of lies, the one who came and deceived us into believing that God wasn't enough. And he gave him a curse. And you can find this curse in Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. I'm going to just paraphrase uh, for time's sake here. But the essence of the curse was this. I'm going to put enmity between your seed, serpent, and the seed of the woman, Eve. And eventually, you will bruise his heel and he will crush your head. That was the essence of the curse. Um, and the, 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 the seed is the thing that, it's the string that runs through the scriptures. So the seed of the serpent is anyone who's opposed to God's plan. So don't just think, um, you know, demons and Satan, though they are real and active, and we'll talk about them in a minute, the the powers and principalities of this world are at work, no doubt. But the seed of the serpent is anyone opposed to God's will, will. and the seed of the woman is any any human being uh, doing God's will. So here here I'm just introducing this kind of seed theology for us to think about acts of history playing out what what the scriptures have promised, that there would be enmity, hatred, right, opposition, oppression, death, pain, suffering. All of of that that's playing out is the playing out of God's curse on the serpent. So what we see here is Herod uh, as, as a bit of a pawn in God's larger scheme. Now, when you hear the name Herod, if you're you're familiar with the New Testament, you've heard that name before. Herod was a dynasty name. And so all the kings would 
would take that name. There were, there were five Herods in history that we know about. The three that you know best are Herod the Great, who was king when Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And he felt threatened because they were talking about this king of the Jews coming, the Messiah. And so he was the one putting to death the children two and under. So that's Herod the Great. Um, later down the road, you would, you would uh, be introduced to Herod Antipas. And Herod Antipas was the one, uh, he put John the Baptist to death. He beheaded him, if you're familiar with that story. And he also made kind of a cameo appearance in Jesus' trial where Pilate and, and Herod were kind of going back and forth on who's going to deal with this Jesus. So that was, that was another Herod. But this Herod is Herod Agrippa I. So it's a different Herod, different rule. And what we can tell, particularly by today's passage, is that he was, he was, uh, you know, he was a people's politician. Like, you know, I mean, that's like oxymoron of the year. Like, he, he loved doing what the people loved from him. And he was very sympathetic to the Jewish nation. And the Jewish nation was disrupted by these followers of Jesus. And so what he saw was in the death of James that the Jewish nation applauded his work. And so he said, well, I'll do that to Peter too. So let me, let me just kind of reel it in a little bit here to us. Um, most of you, at least this past week, uh, did not have your life threatened over your faith. To my knowledge, I felt like I would have got an email about that. Um, but like, you know, like, n- none of you really face, like, that high of level of persecution, again, to my knowledge. If, if you did, forgive me. But none of you really face that level. Like, that's, that's not where we're at. But that doesn't mean um, that persecution isn't here and isn't coming. And, and I want to talk a little bit more about here than the coming. Like, I'm not going to, I don't want to, I don't want to get, like, prophetic, predictive, Like, you know, world's going to hell in a handbasket, so here's what you can expect. Like, I'm not really interested in that, but but I am interested in you kind of, again, in this window of persecution, assessing, like, what, what would it look like for me to be a faithful follower of Jesus in my life today, and what harm could that possibly bring to me? Um, and, and I'll just kind of use two, two, two broad categories. One is oppression, and one... Um, it's just opposition. So the oppression part of it could be, again, you're not losing your life, but you certainly could lose your livelihood. Like faithfulness to Jesus could certainly jeopardize your career. And if there's an unwillingness, and again, like I've said this in past sermons, and maybe if you're new, I just need to say it again. Like I'm not saying you need to go like storm blazing with pickets into the office, you know, and put repent or believe every day. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that that's our method. But there is a component of faithfulness to Jesus in a secular world that might require you to be ostracized. Like your ethics and your integrity are different. You are a citizen of a different kingdom. And your career might ask you to do things that you cannot do. And that might require you taking a, 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 you know, a rung down on the ladder, as it were. So your livelihood could be threatened. Like, there, there could be opposition. Like, for those of you, like, high school kids, you're thinking, like, college and future education. Like, you know, fair warning, um, following Jesus comes with, hardship. Uh, you, you will be ridiculed for being a follower of Jesus in this world. You will be stereotyped as a narrow-minded bigot if you hold 
to things of the kingdom. So our, our ethics on sexuality and marriage are totally unacceptable in the world. Um, our, our, our levels of um, compassion for the poor, we're going to talk about that when we get to politics, but like our ability to love the poor ought to be obtrusive to conservatives, right? And it's not, it's not liberal enough for liberals. We'll talk, I'm, I'm kind of bleeding into politics now. But, but there will be both oppression and opposition. There's a hostility towards believers in the world. It's, it's, it comes with the territory. And, and the beautiful thing about it is when the church, you know, broadly speaking, you know, universal church, when the church is in the most hostile, hot waters in their culture is when she thrives the most. When she's faithful, when faced with the opportunity to be faithless, and she is and remains faithful, she grows. She increases, she multiplies, she thrives. And that's the very thing that was happening in Acts chapter 12 with these early followers. So that's the window of persecution. Let me, let me talk a little bit about the window of prayer. I, I just couldn't escape it. Um, this, you know, so there's this extravagant ev- event, begins in verse 6, talking about Peter's imprisonment. And the thing that seemed to be kind of the underpinnings of it was the prayer of the church. Look back, scroll back up in verse 5. Peter was kept in prison, and and Luke, again, he's a historian. He's not recording these details to just add, you know, color to the text. He says, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. That that language, earnest prayer, it's it's the exact language of Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he died. So that deep, anguished, anxiety-filled prayer was what they were praying uh, for, for Peter. But, but look even uh, later down uh, in verse 12, after, and we're going to talk about what happened to Peter, but afterwards, where does Peter go after he's, he's, he's uh, released from the prison? He goes to this house of, of Mary, the mother of John Mark, and what are they doing? They're gathered together and they're praying. Now, this is not um, Saturday morning at Panera Bread prayer breakfast. Like this is, uh, it was the middle of the night. Do you remember? All these events happened in the middle of the night. So these people, we can assume, got off work. Uh, again, this is, in a, this is a society with no light, no electricity. So you don't, you don't go out at dark. Like it is not safe to be out at dark. You go home after work. But these people went to this woman's house, put themselves at risk, and they stayed there praying together, um, you know, till the, the dark, darkest parts of the night, until Peter got there. And, and here's, you know, here's, here's, here's one way you could take that. Like, oh, I, I know where this, this point's going. Like, oh, you should just be like them, right? Like, why aren't we praying more? Like, can't you just pray harder and longer? Like, all these things are going on in the world. We can't even pray. Like, that's not what's going on. Because here's here's what happens. Let me just kind of walk through the event again. So Peter is in prison. Again, not awaiting trial, awaiting death. Peter's in prison for the weekend. 
Luke tells us it's, it's on Passover weekend, the, the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the reason they decided not to do it is because the population was so high and outrageous, they decided it would be politically best if we just kind of let things simmer down and we'll do it after the big holiday weekend. So Peter's here hanging out in prison. Uh, Luke records these details that he was highly guarded. You know, four men on him. And, and he would have been chained to these men. So Peter's chained between two men. That they've got two guards out front. Like Luke records those details saying, there's no getting out of this one. Peter is sound asleep. Funny. Like, talk about sleeping in the sovereignty of God. Like, this man is so asleep that the angel of the Lord has to poke him. Like, the light didn't wake him up. He wasn't, like, on edge. Like, he was out. Peter was like, I'm good. Like, I'm sleeping. And, and he, he's woken up. He's released from this prison. He's taken out. Like, he still doesn't know if this is real. He thinks it's a vision. He thinks he's dreaming. He's taken out of the prison. The angel of the Lord leaves him in the streets. I just sit with that for a minute. Peter's like, okay. You know, what in the world just happened, Right? So he says, all right, I'm going to go. I'm going to go to my friend's house. I know, you know there's somebody there. At least John Mark's there. His mom's there. And he gets there. He, he knocks on the gate. And the servant, like you can imagine, like prayer meeting, right? Y'all, most of you have been to prayer meetings. It's kind of like, it's like when the cell phone rings. Like you're praying, someone's phone rings, and you're all just thinking, come on, just pick it up. Like who, who doesn't turn their phone off? Like, I don't know. Like, you know, you're like, who is that? Is that me? I don't, that, that feeling of like interruption, they're like, okay, Rhoda, you know, go get the door. We're praying here. So Rhoda, the servant girl, goes and gets the door, and she's astounded. She doesn't even let Peter in, right? She goes back and says, Basically, your prayers were answered, and, and their response, right? You are out of your mind. <laughs> now, that, in my mind, is praying with unbelief. So, again, the, the moral of the story is not like, oh, pray more like these early believers so that God can do all these amazing things. The moral of the story is look how God can use the problematic and riddled with unbelief prayers of his people to do real things in the world. They did it twice. You're out of your mind, Rhoda. She goes back. No, it must be his angel, right? They had this really, uh, uh, really something to be, I'm not going to delve into it, but like, like a guardian angel type of thing. Like they knew Peter was a death. Maybe he was sending his angel to kind of speak with these believers. And then finally they come to terms with it. All right, let's see Peter's here. So, you know, the, 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 again, the takeaway for us is not, come on, you know, people of God, let's pray more, let's pray better. Like, don't we believe what God, you know, like it's not that. The takeaway is look how God uses weak people and the prayer life to change things. And, you know, I don't, I don't have an answer theologically for how that works. Because on the one hand, theologically, like our, our doctrine, our belief about God's providence in the world is that he has both foreordained uh, what would happen, how it would happen. It unfolds exactly like it would happen. Like, like not, a, not an atomic molecule moves apart from the existence of God's hand over that ball. So, like, that's our doctrine, right? Like, you guys are like, hoorah, yeah, we're all about that. But on the other hand, he hasn't just ordained the end, but also the means of accomplishing that. 
and the means that God uses to bring about his accomplished will on earth is even weak prayers full of unbelief. Now, if that doesn't just kind of settle into your, you know, to your guts a little bit, like that in my mind is what's happening. God's people prayed and he acted. You know, Peter, um, he knew he was going to die. Jesus, uh, if you remember in the Gospels, he recounted uh, that Jesus said, you're going to die for me. And so this is actually Peter's third narrow escape from death. So you you can imagine, like, attempt one, okay, wow, it's a close one. Attempt two, you're like, wow, how is it not that one? Like, attempt three, I feel like that's why Peter was sleeping so well. Like, he just knew this was it. But God's people prayed. And it actually delivered him. God uses even the weak prayers of his weakest people to actually change things in the world. That's, that's window number two. And then let's talk about window number three, maybe the most highly anticipated point of the day. Not highly anticipated. Let's talk about politics for a minute. Dare I? I'm going to do it. I can't even see your face. Are you smiling? I don't know. Um, what we see recorded at the, at the end of chapter 12 is, is the death of a king. Um, Herod dies. And, uh, you know, Luke, he gives a theological interpretation of why he died. Because he didn't give God the glory. So that's like, that's Luke's theological synopsis of why this man died. But but we don't even just take Luke's word for this. Um, This is one of those somewhat rare events where an event in the Bible is also recorded in, you know, modern, or not, you know, ancient history. So Josephus, who was a historian, also recorded the death of King Herod Agrippa. And it was a little bit, it was even more nuanced and detailed than Luke's account. And so what happens was, um, you know, Luke says he was struck dead. What's the language he uses? He says, uh, verse uh, 23, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down. So in our minds, reading that, we think it was like on the spot. That's not necessarily the case. What happened was he got sick. It looked like it was a stomach pain. So I don't know if he had like a a burst appendix. You know, we don't know the the medical details. But clearly he was giving this oration and he, you know, fell over sick. And Josephus tells us he died five days later. And again, and Luke inserts his theological interpretation of that. Here's why this man died. He refused to give God the glory. And, you know, I think the way I want to dive in, um, and maybe we're just more like dipping our toe into politics, is um, I want you to, to have a view on two things. I want you to understand what the Bible teaches us about world leaders. And I want you to, te- I want you to understand what the Bible teaches us about our relationship to those world leaders. Um, So the Bible teaches us that all human authority is instituted and given to us by God. You can refer to Romans chapter 13 for that. All of it. There is not a single um, king, pharaoh, ruler, potus, whatever in the world 
nobody has any authority unless it was given to them by God Almighty. Do you remember Jesus when he was um, in front of the, the rulers who, you know, assumingly had his life in their hands? And they were like, just tell us where your authority comes from and, you know, we'll let you go. Like they were just trying to get him an out so he would just denounce. And, and Jesus' response, oh so witty, he said, listen, you wouldn't have any authority over me unless my Father in heaven gave it to you. So Jesus and the Bible's understanding of human institutions is that nobody gets authority unless God gives it to them. So let's just translate that. So Pharaoh, who, you know, pounded God's people for years, was instituted by God. And Caesar, and Herod, and Nero, and dare I say Hitler, and Stalin, and Donald Trump, and every 40, and the 44 presidents that preceded him, all of them were placed with that authority by God Almighty. Now, I, I understand, like, theologically and philosophically, that, that may be riddled with problems for you. But the overwhelming truth that should be just, it just, just let it wash over you for a minute. And I'll just put it like in real stark terms. God's already elected our next president. Like, he already knows. Now, there's something to be said about how we vote. I'm going to talk about that in a minute, how we relate and how we, you know, again, this is the both end. God is sovereign over all the atoms and molecules, and he works through the weak prayers of his people. God has elected our next president, and you need to vote in a couple weeks. It, I don't know. I, I'm not here to sort that out for you. But the Bible's explicitly clear. Every human authority is given by God. So just rest in that. Like, go take a nap this afternoon on that one. Like that, that, I mean, can we pack it up and just go home on that note, please? But with that said... Um, there is a way that believers specifically, and if you're, if you're not here and you're not a Christian, like you're just kind of exploring the faith, thank you. Um, these points don't necessarily directly you know, have implication for your life. But for the believer, like how do we relate to the Herods? Like to the people that would be killing our church leaders? Like, how do we relate to them? And I thought about kind of giving you a bunch of good pastoral insight, but I'm just going to let the Bible speak. Listen to what, and this is Peter. So Peter wrote this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13 and down. I'm just going to just slowly, just, I just want you to let it kind of flow over you. Political season, election year, you know, it's all high and up there. Listen to the way the believers to relate to those human authorities. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God. Here it is. Underline this. That by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. And you know, bumper, bumper sticker statement of the year right here, verse 17. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. That's some good advice. Um, 
this will, I'll just add this kind of pastoral tip. Wherever you're at in the election season, um, the two-party system or three-party system or just partisan politics cannot contain the worldview of Jesus. Um, both sides, you know, Jesus was way too liberal for conservatives, and he was way too conservative for liberals. You know, Jesus offers a third way of living. And so, the, you know, you know, it, it's, again, I'm not, you know, God forbid, I would never, I'm not out here, like, telling you, you know, ballot advice. What I'm telling you is that behind the p- political scene, and I know it feels heavy right now. Like none of we don't we don't know who to trust, what to trust, who to listen to. Like I I, I know that conflict, but knowing that God has ordained all of the human institutions, and you are to honor them with your life in goodness, is enough for the believer. Jesus invites you to a third way of living, and um, and here's. You know, here's, I'll just kind of, I'm just going to park the car with this. This story of people living and dying for Jesus, like that's essentially what chapter 12 is. What does it look like to die for Jesus? What does it look like to live for Jesus? Um, it is, it is, you know, it is contained in, in the nutshell of what we would call the good news of the Lord Jesus. Um, Peter's release from prison you know, the, the way that the text, at least in my version, my chains fell off. Um, it is, and it's not just metaphor, it actually happened, but it is metaphorical of what the believer experiences upon fleeing to Christ for redemption. That no longer are you, are you imprisoned. No longer are you on death row awaiting judgment. And, and I would be, it would be remiss of me if I didn't just address anyone here who's never experienced the unshackling of your chains. You are prisoned to your sin. You are held bound fast. And you are hell bound. Like the, the teaching of the scriptures is that Jesus came not to condemn but to give life. And so for the, for the vast majority of us, we've experienced the, the unshackled life of coming to Christ. But let me just re-invite you to taste that again today. That no matter how the political dominoes will fall, no matter who lives, who dies, no matter what the Middle East territory looks like, no matter where our military troops are, no matter the case, if you belong to Jesus you are no longer imprisoned. You can now actually live. So I guess the, the closing invitation, we're going to sing it in this song uh, that we're going to close with. It's a, it's a modernized um, tune to an old ancient hymn, And Can It Be? We're going to sing that. And I, and I just, um, I want to pull up the words um, as we close this morning. And I want, I want this to just, I just want this to wash over you today. Because I think this is what was going on with the early believers, and I want it to happen in your life. Charles Wesley wrote this hymn, and can it be? And one of the verses we're about to sing says this. 
Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin in nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. It's what happened to Peter. And if you're here today believing on Jesus Christ, it's what happened to you. Let's, let's breathe that air in today. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you that you've given us these recorded events so that we can have a peek into what's going on beyond them. I pray for everyone who's hearing these words uh, that we would see beyond the obvious, uh, that we would not be undone through the political scene or the persecution in the world or financial chaos, loss of job, whatever it is in our own lives, Lord, but that we would resonate Uh, with Charles Wesley, that you have set our imprisoned spirits free. Would you help us do that? We pray these things in your name. Amen. This is the sermon podcast for Mosaic Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Committed to bringing the beauty of the gospel of Jesus to the broken places of our lives. 